Okay, right now let's open up in our Bibles to 1 John. We are continuing in our study of 1 John. We've been in it for a few weeks now. We are in chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. And the commandment to love one another as the church. The commandment to love one another. Incredibly important text today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. We'll read it together. I'll be reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible this morning. We'll read it, and then we'll talk about it. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. The Apostle John writes to these churches and says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, (laughs) which is true in him, that is Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness right up until now. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your glorious word. It's a joy every week to gather and to open your word together, knowing that it's authoritative, it's your word to us, knowing that though you used men to pen it, it's not men's word, it's the very word of God. It's authoritative and it's trustworthy, it's inerrant. And Lord, your word is living and active. Thank you that this morning we're not just going to read the word and study the word, but by the work of your spirit, it's going to read and study our hearts. And Lord, I would just confess in my own heart that I'm so deficient in the area of loving my brothers and sisters. So much of my thought processes are ruled by selfishness and unfair comparison. So many of my emotions and actions are ruled by wanting to exalt myself at the expense of others rather than to esteem others as more important than myself. Lord, I I confess these things and so I desperately need your word to be heard by my heart today to love my brothers and sisters. And I desperately need your Holy Spirit to convict my heart and to convince my heart and my mind to be obedient by the power of the Spirit to this glorious truth. Holy Spirit, do that for us. Thank you for Christ, who is a very expression of the love of the Father. Thank you for the cross that is a demonstration of the love of the Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you pour the love of the Father into our hearts. And so we just ask that you would cause our lives to be consonant with this great commandment to love one another. You'd reveal our blind spots and our dark spots, our selfish areas, and even our hatred toward one another and all the ways that we'd want to excuse it and call it something else. Reveal those things. By your great love and because we are loved, teach us to love each other in a way that brings great glory to your name and changes our lives 
for your purposes here in the coastlands and unto the nations. Please anoint me to teach and preach and to be faithful to your word and your cause. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll just remind you briefly of the context here of 1 John. John is writing to churches that he had some sort of leadership role in. Either he planted these churches or they just recognized him as an apostle that had been with Jesus. But he's got some degree of authority in these churches and there's been a sharp degree in this church. You'll remember that there's some theological error going on that presents the historical roots for Gnosticism and Docetism. We talked about those things that some people within the church were beginning to deny the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus had come in the flesh And the implications are if they denied that the Messiah came in the flesh in Christ, then they denied that he was nailed to the cross in the flesh, that he died in the flesh, that his flesh was broken for us. And so they denied the atonement. And so then denying the atonement, they had to do something with the reality of their sin. And so there was both a denial and a minimization of sin. And that's why we see in the first chapter, John saying early on in verse six, if anyone says they are without sin, they're kidding themselves and they're calling God a liar. And again, if anyone says that they have no sin and he addresses these errors that the, um, we'll call them the opponents are making, whenever he says, if anyone says, or the one who claims, he's addressing those errors to those who remain within the church that they might be steadfast in their faith. Remember the book of 1 John is all about getting the identity of Christ right and then getting the conduct of the Christian right. Who Christ is, what he's done for us, and how we ought to live in light of that. So he's confronting that error. And he confronts more error today in verse 9 of our text, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, the one who says he is in the light... You'll remember the opponents were claiming to be enlightened. And part of their false theology that would blossom into Gnosticism was you can be enlightened through secret knowledge, through the right understanding. John is writing to say you actually have incorrect understanding about the person of Christ. And if you had the right understanding, it would be evidenced in your life. So he confronted them in verse four last week and says, the one who says I've come to know him and yet does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Because you'll remember the opponents, because they had this false dualism, esteeming what is spiritual, they would say, minimizing what is of the flesh. They would say, look, we're, we're spiritual in our salvation. We're spiritual in our standing before God. What happens in the flesh really doesn't matter. And so they lived incongruent lives. They lived lives in the flesh that were unfaithful, that were sloppy, that were disobedient, and yet claiming to be enlightened, claiming to know Christ, claiming to be abiding in Christ. And John is saying, if you are truly following Jesus, there would be some profound evidence in your life of that. You would live differently You wouldn't take sin lightly. You wouldn't minimize the effects of it. You wouldn't think that what happens in the flesh has no effect in the spiritual realm. You would recognize that Jesus Christ is the righteous who has both made us righteous through his work on the cross and is calling us into righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he dealt with obedience last week. And now he's gonna drill down a little deeper on obedience. Because, you know, when we talk about what does it mean to obey Jesus, there's so much that we could talk about, 
right? 613 commands in the Old Testament. And then we have the New Testament and Jesus ups the ante on those. Jesus says, you've heard it say that you should not commit adultery. But I say, if you just look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother, you're already guilty of murder. So not only do we have the Old Testament commandments which show the righteousness of God and what righteous living could look like, but we have Jesus not abolishing, but upping the ante on it, revealing that the real sin issue is in the heart. So last week when we were talking about obedience, we're like, gosh, that's so big. And there's so many things to obey. We rejoice, right? In chapter two, verse one, that said this, my little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, walk in obedience. But if anybody sins, he or she has an advocate with the father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. We, we rejoice in that advocacy of Christ, our savior. And yet we're called to walk in obedience, but that's so broad. What does it mean? Jesus helped Israel in thinking about obedience when he said, you know what? The law and the prophets could really be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The rest is kind of details. The rest is minutia. The rest is the way that that plays out. But if you concentrate on loving God with every fiber of your being more than anything else and loving your neighbor and the way that you would love and care for yourself, that's going to go a long ways toward righteous living and obedience. So John is kind of doing the same thing. Last week, he called us to obedience. And you'll remember that sermon. We had how many points on obedience? 14? Who does a 14-point sermon? 14 points on why it's important to obey. And now John is helping us to drill down. He's going to simplify it for us a little bit. Okay, he's going to put obedience in this way. Though there's a lot of details. Love one another. is going to go so far toward righteous living. So that's what he's getting at. And so we look at the text carefully. He says again in verse seven, beloved, reminding them that they are the beloved of God and that he as one authority, one with authority in their lives loves him. Beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment when he's telling them to love one another, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word which you have heard. Now, what is, he, what is he referring to here? Because in the next verse, he says, well, I'm actually writing you a new commandment. So he says, I'm not giving you anything new. And he's referring to the situation that they're in because they're in a difficult time in the life of their church. There's division and there's drama and there's people that are living and there's sharp, the- or leaving, excuse me, and there's sharp theological disagreement. And he says, listen, I know stuff is hard for you guys right now as a church. I'm not going to lay anything new on you. I'm just going to give you an old commandment. I'm going to tell you something that I told you before, to love one another. Look in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is what John is talking about when he says, it's an old commandment. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then look at verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. And this is a commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So when the apostle John is saying this is an old commandment, he means it's old to the extent 
to when they first believed in the gospel. Whoever preached the gospel to them at first, and it very well may have been John, the apostle, whom we know is the apostle of love, the one who experienced that incredible transformation as going from one whom Jesus called a son of thunder to the one who at the Last Supper was reclining upon Christ's breast and referred to himself in the gospel that he wrote as the one whom Jesus loved. That incredible transformation from a son of thunder to the one whom Jesus loved. If it was him who first preached the gospel to them, he delivered to them co-committantly at the same time the command to love one another. He said, listen, you are loved by God. Christ is the evidence of that love. The cross is the demonstration of that love. You're called into the love of God through the repentance of sins and the work of the cross. But concurrent with that, a part of that is that you also love one another. That's part of the gospel. Not only that we're loved by God, though we were all together unlovely, but that when we have been saved, we've, brought in, we've been brought into the love of God and called toward love for one another. And again, he says in chapter three, verse 23, this is a commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. In the mind of the apostle here, these go together. The good news of God's love for us and Christ's work upon the cross and the wonderful possibility of loving each other in a new way. So he says, listen, stuff is hard in your church right now. It's very much like our church. Different problem, but a difficult time unprecedented. They had never had a bunch of people leaving their church because they didn't leave in the incarnation. They weren't sure what to do. That's why John is writing them. We've never been in this situation as a church. We're not sure what to do. And so this is helpful to us. John says, I'm not going to lay on you anything new. You've known this the whole time. Here's what I want you to do in difficult days. Love one another. It is part and parcel with the gospel. There is no realization of the gospel and its full implications without loving in the way that we have been loved. And then he says in verse eight, on the other hand, I am writing to you a new commandment. Well, which one is it, John? Get it together. I'm not telling you a new commandment. It's an old commandment. Well, actually, it's kind of a new commandment. Here's what he's referring to. Keep a finger right here in 1 John and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Verse 34, Jesus is heading toward the cross. We're getting to the last couple days here. He's getting ready to leave. And he says in verse 34 to the disciples, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now we think, why would Jesus say this is a new commandment? He's already said to them, the law and the prophets can be summed up in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we could go back and look in the Old Testament, and God has always been telling his people to love one another. In what way is Jesus claiming this is new? He's upping the ante on what it means for God's people to love each other. Previously, it was says, it was said, excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. That's one thing. But Jesus just made it so much more radical. He says, I'm calling you to love one another as I have loved you. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I already really struggle with loving my neighbor like myself. You know what that means? It's it's consistent with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? So there are times where we despise ourselves and we abuse ourselves, and that's clearly not what Jesus was talking about or what Scripture is talking about when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Deep in us, there's a self-concern. That's why you shaved this morning. That's why you used soap this morning. That's why you brushed your teeth. That's why you put on the appropriate clothing to be warm or to be cool enough. That's why you style yourself the way you do. That's why you eat certain foods. That's why you go certain places because you love yourself. And so you care for yourself. That's self-evident. In the same way that you care for yourself, care for your neighbor. Love your neighbor is the old command. And now Jesus is saying, that's not enough for the new community. That's not enough for my church. I'm taking it further. I'm calling us to something altogether radical and supernatural. A new commandment I give to you, my disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. The way you care for yourself is no longer the standard for how you care for your neighbor. The way that I have cared for you, the way that I have loved you, Christ says, is the new standard for how you're to love one another. That's radical. That's radical. We are called as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, as followers of Jesus, to love one another as Christ has loved us. So so we got to think about what, what is Christ's love like? Man, if you need a reminder of that, read through the Gospels again. Read through the Gospels again and see the way that Jesus dealt with people. See Jesus walking into Jericho looking for Zacchaeus, who had betrayed his own nation, who had extorted from his own people, who abused people for selfish gain. But Jesus goes and finds him and says, Zacchaeus, today I want to come to your house. And he restores him. And there's evidence to that restoration. Zacchaeus says, half of everything that I have, Jesus, having been touched by your pursuing love, having had you come to me, having experienced that you come after broken, crooked men like me, half of all that I have, I'm giving to the poor. And those that I've cheated, I'm repaying them back four times. There was the radical pursuing love of God in Christ and there was the transformation of the person who had received the love in some real tangible, evidential way. Think of the woman caught in adultery, caught red-handed. And one of the worst things we could all think about. And what the community wants to do is kill her, literally. 
They want to stone her. And there they are, the religious people with stones in their hands. And Jesus deals with them and then says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? Does nobody condemn you? I don't condemn you either. But go and sin no more. He didn't deny the sin. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't minimize it. He recognized it. And then with cords of kindness, he drew her to repentance and put her on the right path and said, woman, don't sin anymore. You got to know her life was transformed by grace that day. Think about Peter who denied Jesus. Jesus even told him, Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, listen, boys, all of you, all of you are going to turn away from me this evening. And Peter said, oh, Jesus, maybe these guys? Like maybe James and John, sons of thunder? And probably for sure Matthew, he was already a traitor, tax collector. And for sure Simon the zealot, he's like crazy, he's a zealot. But remember me, I'm the one that you called the rock. No, Jesus, everyone else may forsake you, but not me. I'm willing to die with you. And Jesus says, oh, Pete, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny knowing me three times. And Peter denied Christ. It says in one of the gospels that the third time he began to curse and swear. It doesn't mean that he used foul language. It means he said something colloquially in that culture to this, this concept. May God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. I was never with him. What does Jesus do? When Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he tells Mary Magdalene, who herself was a sexually immoral woman that was previously demonized, Jesus appears to her first, who would have been the lowest in culture, appears to her first and says, go tell my brethren and tell Peter that I am risen. And Jesus goes to where Peter was. Man, Peter bailed on the whole gig and he's back up north in Galilee fishing. He'd given up on the thing. He denied Christ. And he's back there fishing and Jesus walks into his context, onto his beach and says, oh, Peter. Peter jumps off the boat and swims and Jesus gives him a meal. The ultimate sign of fellowship and connectivity and love and understanding in that culture. And he restores them. Paul, who was killing Christians, Jesus appears in his resurrected glory and uses him as a proclaimer of the gospel and a planner of churches. Look at the love of God in Christ. And haven't we been loved in that same way? Weren't we like Peter? Weren't we like Paul? Weren't we like Mary Magdalene? Weren't we like the woman caught in adultery? Weren't we like Zacchaeus? Weren't we like the woman at the well? And yet Christ came to us. Never minimizing, never downplaying, never denying our sin. Fully aware of it loving us in the midst of it and loving us enough to give his life on the cross. 
And so he says, a new commandment I give to you. In the way that you've been loved by me, church, reality, this is how I want you to love one another. Then he says there in verse 35 of John 13, by this, the whole world's going to know that you're mine. This will be the ultimate revelation that you belong to me, that you're a new creation with a new identity, living according to a new truth, with a new power, that you're followers of Jesus. The ultimate proof of that will be this sort of love for one another. That gives us hope at this time as our church. You know, because right now we've got a bad reputation in the community. Just say it. So what we're endeavoring to do is just own that sin, right? We're going to be like, Jesus, we're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to try to minimize it. We're going to own it. Yes, it's sin. You know, when, when the world sins, what they need to hear from Christians is about the forgiveness that there is offered in Jesus Christ. But when the world sees the church sin, what they need to see from the church is that we acknowledge our sin as sin. And we're not trying to minimize it or make less of it or pretend it's not there. So we're trying to do that. But let me tell you what else the world needs to see. That we love one another as we have been loved. This is going to be our greatest witness, our greatest testimony in the world that we love one another. Now, the ultimate expression of that, of course, is a cross. Turn to John 15, where Jesus repeats himself. He's talking about him being the vine and us being the branches and having to abide in him. And then he says in John 15, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Then he reminds them, this is the commandment. It's not new anymore. He already gave it to him in chapter 13. This is now the commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13 He explains what the ultimate expression of that will look like. Verse 13, he says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. Then he says in verse 14 to them, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Friends tell friends secrets. Verse 16, this is important here, verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And listen, this is true of your life. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain And that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. We have been incredibly loved by God in Christ. We have been the beneficiaries 
of the greatest demonstration, example, the fullest truth of love, the cross of Jesus Christ, where the righteous one gave himself for the broken ones, where the innocent gave himself for the guilty, where the holy lamb of God gave himself for the rebels against God. The ultimate display of love, Romans 5, 8, God has demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he's saying, this is it. Greater love has no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And I'm calling you friends. I'm laying down my life for you. I have chosen you and I have appointed you. And I have appointed you to bear fruit. That your life would have fruit. And that your fruit would remain, that it would be consistent and continual. And the kind of fruit I'm calling you to is this. This is a command that you love one another as I have loved you. This is God's will for our lives as Christians, that we love one another even as we have been loved. And the greatest way to love is the way of the cross. Now we talk about, well, yeah, I, you know, if someone was going to like shoot my friend, I'd get in the way of the bullet and I'd, I'd give myself up for them. Easy peasy, that's movies. <laughs> Let me tell you where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road in my ego, in your ego. Am I willing to do what Philippians 2 says? Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Esteem others as more important than yourself. That's what it is to love the way of the cross. To not deal with people anymore according to my ego. When I deal with people according to my ego, I want to look better than them. I care about my needs more than theirs. I want to end up ahead of them. I make sure that I have all my bases covered while theirs go uncovered. I minimize my sin and I maximize their sin. You know, our sin always looks worse on other people, doesn't it? We're so gracious with ourselves sometimes. We're so willing to overlook so many of our faults, but we're so unwilling to overlook so many of the faults of those whom we're called to love. Why? Because we consider ourselves to be of greater importance. It's not the way of the cross. It's not what we've been called to. It's not the wonderful hope that we have in the gospel. The wonderful hope that we have in the gospel is that we can love as we have been loved. And we've been appointed for this is what Jesus is saying. Now, going back to the text, 1 John, flipping there where your finger is, Again, in verse 8, John says this. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment. I explained to you why it's a new commandment. As Jesus said, he upped the ante on it. And he says, which is true in him. In other words, where we see this is in the life of Jesus. We just talked about that. This new commandment, this great love is true in Christ. It's evident in him. We saw in his life. We experience it in his love. And then he says, and it's true in you. Gosh, he he has a high opinion of that church. He's saying, you guys are doing well at loving one another. This Christ-like, self-sacrificial love, it's true in your church. It's happening there. But he's calling them to be mindful of it, to continue in it, even more of it. Why? Because of the reality of our salvation 
and the coming of the kingdom. Look what he says in the second part of verse eight. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Because we're an eschatological people. Oh no, Pastor Britt is making up words again. (laughs) Eschatological people. Eschatology, the study of the end things or the last things. We're people whose lives are profoundly affected by the end truth of what God will do. The day when in Christ he will set right everything that has gone wrong. Where he will judge all things. Where the effects of sin will be reversed. The great day of reversal. And Christ our king will rule and reign. And we will be with him forever. And there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. No more disease, no more betrayal, no more slander, no more backbiting, no more selfish motive because the perfect has come and we will be like him in glory with him, the ultimate reversal of all things. But you see, those things are being made true in our lives right now because we have already been saved And the kingdom, though it's not quite fully here yet, has already come in the person of Christ, right? And so we live in the dawn. He describes it there this way. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. You know those hours before dawn? Anybody ever get up before dawn? My mom. God bless my mom. My mom is up every morning before dawn reading her Bible. I love the pre-dawn hours. What's happening in the pre-dawn hours? The darkness is fading away and a big light is already shining. And we can't see it yet. It's still behind the mountains from the perspective of my house. It's still behind the mountains. But its effect is being made evident. Light's coming from that source. And in a very tangible, discernible way, that light is pushing the darkness back ever so slowly. The darkness is being pushed back and the light is dawning. We live in a sort of dawn when the true light has already come. The true light is Christ Jesus. Every other light is just a shadow of him. Jesus said, I am the true light. Jesus said, I'm the bread. Everything else that we nourish ourselves on is just a shadow and a foreshadow of him. Jesus said, I'm I'm the true wine. Everything else that we drink is just a shadow and a foreshadow of him. I'm the true vine. Jesus is the true of all these things. He says, I'm the true light. Any other light in the world is a mere reflection of who I am. And the true light has come in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's what John is asserting here. If Christ has come in the flesh, then the light has come. That's what he argued in the gospel of John chapter one. And the light is dawning. And so the darkness is being pushed back. And there's coming a day where the sun will fully rise. And there is no darkness whatsoever. And there is coming a day where the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings, the Old Testament prophet said. And there won't be any more darkness or crying or pain or weeping for the old things will have fully passed away and new things will have come. But we live in the dawn where the light is coming. And what should be happening in our lives in consonance with that is that the darkness is truly being pushed back by the light of Jesus Christ. 
The way that this is made evident is in our loving of one another. The way that we acknowledge the light of Christ, the way that we reflect the light of Christ is to love one another as we have been loved. A new commandment I give to you. It's evident in Christ and it's evident in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light has come because we're living in a dawn with a greater hope because as Colossians 1 says, we have been transferred, delivered from the domain of darkness, delivered from it, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. We're not of the darkness anymore. We're of the light. And John is drawing distinctions here. You know what John is saying? There is no gray. There is no strange shadowy blue. There's no indiscernible purple. There's dark and there's light. And we are children of the light. And so we endeavor to love one another as we have been loved. So then he says in verse nine, the one who says he is in the light Whenever he says the one who says, he's addressing one of the claims of his opponents. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness right up until now. So we claim that we're followers of Jesus Christ, but we hate each other. John is saying, no, you're, I, I don't know that you are. You're evidencing by your behavior and your attitude that you're in darkness. Now, nobody's going to get this perfect, so we're so thankful for chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're so thankful for chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing this to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. And yet he's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, don't live in the dark blue. Don't live in the gray. Get in the light. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. And if you say you're in the light and you hate your brother, you're just not. The truth is not in you. Now, it's easy for me to justify myself and say, well, I don't, I don't hate any of my brothers. I think we misunderstand what's meant here by hate. We think hate is some real malice and something murderous. And we could easily say, well, I don't hate them. I don't really like them. I don't really care about them. I don't really care to be around them. But I don't hate them. I, I love them in the Lord. Love in Christ. It's not that easy. The idea of hate here in the text is merely this, the absence of love. It's not what we would think of, evil, malice, and malintent. It's not that. It's the absence of love. He's not giving us a middle ground. He's saying we are called to love each other in the same way that we've been loved. Anything less than that is hate, the absence of love. It's not just a momentary spike of rage. It's a continual attitude in ourselves, which is formed rather than by the cross, by ego. My sin is less than theirs. My needs are more important. My theology is right. Yours is not right. I don't hate you. I, don't want to, I just don't want anything to do with you. You're, you're guilty of hatred. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light 
and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Man, that's a big one. There's no cause for stumbling in him. It's ambiguous in the Greek grammar, whether it means that we won't stumble when we're walking in love and so walking in the light, or whether or not we will make others to stumble. It doesn't matter too much. The call is still the same, to love each other as we've been loved. And then there's no opportunity for stumbling. You know when we stumble is when we love ourselves too much and we don't love others enough. When we're not living in consonance with the cross. When we're not extending the same mercy and forgiveness and grace that we've been given. These things cause us to stumble and then they cause others to stumble. And man, we've got to be honest, this just happens in the church a lot. We're, we're not that great at loving like we've been loved. It's incredibly difficult. We can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit and a continual giving of ourselves to following after Jesus, always reminding ourselves of the grace that we've been given, the way that we've been loved. You know, Jesus was so kind to broken people in the Gospels. The only time we see Jesus get a little edgy is with the self-righteous. And he gets pretty heavy-duty. He calls them all sorts of nasty names. Says all sorts of radical things to them. Woe unto you. And then in verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So if we walk in the light, let's just use a metaphor now here. When the light is on in this room, no problem to walk across the room. I can avoid stumbling. I'm walking in the light. I'm not going to trip on this rug. I'm not going to trip on your feet. I'm not going to trip on the chairs. But if all the lights go off and you try to walk across this room, you can trip easily. You don't know where you're going. We experience that all the time. If we're endeavoring to love each other in the way that we've been loved by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like walking in the light. It's clear at all the junctures of life the way that we should go. Life becomes more simple. There's so many opportunities to stumble, but it becomes more clear. Well, I know here I need to go the way of the cross. So that means choosing something other than what satisfies my ego or exalts myself or merely meets my own needs. The way of the cross is always going to be following Jesus. But if I'm not endeavoring to love the way that I've loved, then the analogy is I'm walking in the darkness. There's all sorts of opportunities to go the wrong way, to get tripped up, and to fall down. Because now the decisions are much more ambiguous. It's not as clear the way to go. Well, what should I do here? Well, what's going to look Christian but really be to my benefit? How can I figure that out? What's going to appease them for a moment but not inconvenience me too much? How much can I give just to kind of be accepted and, and, you know, look good but not so much that it hurts? How much can I just kind of ignore their sin and not say anything to them but really think in my mind, I can't believe that they failed in that way. I can't believe what losers they are and still justify myself. All of a sudden, life gets really messy because now there's no plumb line. There's no new commandment. There's no clear directive. There's no light in our walking. Now we're stumbling around like men and women in the dark trying to figure out how to balance the way of the cross and our egos. And John is saying, there's no gray. 
There's no dark blue. There's light and there's darkness. And you are sons and daughters of the light. Walk as Jesus walked. Love as you have been loved. This is a call of the text. God, give us grace to live it out. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word to us. And I, I just confess, Lord, that I'm convicted in all sorts of ways. I can think of a whole bunch of decisions in my life recently where I'm so concerned about self and ego and help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need you to exalt Christ in our hearts and minds. That he'd be so huge that we would just think so much less of ourselves. We need you, Holy Spirit, to lead us to the cross again. That we might see simultaneously the horror and reality of our sin and yet the wonder and the glory of the Son who gave himself for us. That we might be both humbled and overjoyed. Holy Spirit, we need you to pour the love of the Father into our hearts that we could rightly love one another. We need tremendous help with this. And so, show us where we're not doing this as a church. At this difficult time in the life of our church, show us what this means. To love each other like we've been loved by Christ. And help us by the Holy Spirit to walk in wonderful obedience to it. And so, abide in the light and not stumble. 